We welcome you to Sports Talk on Shadow League Radio. It's your boy, Mark Gray. Thanks for hanging out. As always, you can find me on social media at The Sports Groove. That would be Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And uh, share the link of the podcast to, oh, I don't know, 250,000 of your close personal friends. And we would be greatly appreciated, as always. As we are to be joined by today's guest, he is an author and scholar, both uh, a professor at, at Dartmouth University, but he's also written a book that chronicles one of the great passions of mine in particular, that being black college football. And for as much as Eddie Robinson gets credit for being the greatest coach in the history of the African-American national past time, one could make a compelling argument that Jake Gaither takes a back seat to no one. One of the great coaches who led Florida A&M's place to its prominence amongst the landscape of the African-American national pastime. And Derek White, the author of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, which does examine how FAMU, under the leadership of Gaither, was transformed into one of the greatest programs in the 30 years after World War II. And Derek, thanks for taking the time to join us, my friend. How are you? I'm good. How about yourself? You know how it is. Uh, I'd like to think I, at 80%, I'm better than just about anybody else. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. I'll take that. I wanted to talk even before we got into the legend that is Jake Gaither about your understanding about the place of black college football. And I refer to it reverently as the African-American national pastime. But in the pantheon of America's sports conscience, where would you rank it? Well, I think it's a, it has an important role, right? I think this is one of the reasons I wrote the book, that like um, when you you know study sports history and you study African-American sports history, you look at a couple of things. One is that you have boxing, of course, from Jack Johnson to Muhammad Ali to Mike Tyson takes a kind of prominent role uh, for most of the 20th century. Um, there's, of course, baseball and the Negro Leagues. Um, but I would argue that black college football in many ways comes in just behind those institutions for a number of reasons. And ahead of basketball, which kind of seems kind of in the modern uh, contemporary moment, it feels kind of out of place. But black college football worked for a couple of reasons. And one of that is that it had this intimate connection to black communities, whether it's Washington, D.C., whether it was Philadelphia uh, in the mid-Atlantic or in, in, in Tallahassee, Jacksonville, Miami. Miami FAMU was that was part of their home. Baton Rouge in New Orleans, um, uh, you know, you talking about Southern controlling that area, Tennessee State and Nashville, uh, and so these are these are major Southern hubs. Most of them Southern hubs for Black life and Black communities. And Black college football in the fall of every year were kind of a centerpiece to the the kind of um, community engagement, uh, parades, parties, uh, social activism, all emerged from this kind of hub that was a, a kind of central outlet for black communities. When you look at the times, particularly in those that you chronicle, the post-World uh, War II era, those 30 years, we had certain places in, during the era of segregation and Jim Crow that 
black people could only go. You know, there was Harlem in New York. There was U Street in D.C. But down south, Negro League baseball games and I would say black college football games, with perhaps maybe the exception of Auburn Avenue in Atlanta, were places that were more than just opportunities for you to get together and watch a sports event. They were significant hubs of social activity, were they not? Oh, absolutely, right? I mean, we have, I, you know, I kind of try to document some of this. They're like the president of FAMU, for instance. Uh, Florida a and had one of the, the largest uh, uh, black college football games known as the Orange Blossom Classic. Classic, which was started in 1933 and ran through 1979. Uh, and from 1947 to 1979, it was located primarily in Miami. And so one of the things that you that I found in my work was that, you know, various FAMU presidents would, you know, when the Classic took off uh, the first Saturday in December, uh, they were down in Miami meeting with politicians. They were meeting with alumni groups. They were doing not just the work, the, the social aspect, but some a lot of the business of the institution uh, could be could happen this way uh, at this time during those weekends because so many people were congregated in one location. Derek White is our guest. He is the author of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, which chronicles the legend that is Florida A and M's great Jake Gaither, whose reputation really. I'm not going to say it's diminished because if you're a black college football aficionado, you know his story, but it really hasn't resonated the way that, say, an Eddie Robinson story has. And and that's where I want to go, Derek. The fact that Jake Gaither, you crunch the numbers, his winning percentage was right there. He went up against Eddie Robinson and had a great deal of success. The way that they had to run their programs by not only being CEOs, but athletic trainers, driver of the buses and the whole thing, they seem to mimic one another. Why is it that Gaither's legacy, for lack of a better term, is either lost or dwarfed while Coach Rob's legacy continues to live beyond his passing? I think that, uh, you know, the advantage that, that that Coach Robinson had was that he had a tremendous longevity, right? Like, he, you know, he was the head coach for nearly, uh, approximately 50 years, right? He goes into – and I think one of the things I try to try to outline, too, is that the difference between Gaither and, and Coach Rob is a couple of things. One is that Gaither's um, success is really bound in the era of segregation, right? So he comes head coach in 1945, and he – retires in 1969. Uh, and Eddie Robinson, of course, is coaching in that same time frame. But what he does is he's able to transition into the desegregated era in a much more effective way, right? And so grambling is really kind of, as I argue that you know, Florida A&M is a dominant foot, black college football program in the 1950s uh, into the early 60s. Really, you see that Grambling becomes the dominant, at least the most popular program uh, in the mid-60s through the 1980s and beyond, right? And so that has really affected the ways in which um, uh, that we remember black college football and Eddie Robinson. I mean, he had l- such longevity. Um, there's also this kind of interesting dynamic that happens, whereas the Orange Blossom Classic, which was the premier event uh, from really the 1930s through the 1960s, uh, begins to dwindle during desegregation. 
whereas the Bayou Classic really takes off, right? It doesn't establish itself until 1974, uh, and so the Bayou Classic begins to explode and becomes the kind of premier example of what black college um, football could be about. So there's a, there's a couple of, some of it's about timing, right, as the way we try to remember it. But when we look at the head-to-head, right, and that's one of the things I try to do is that, you know, it, you know Coach Robinson doesn't win his first national title until 1955, and he does that by defeating Florida a in the Orange Blossom Classic, right? Like, in many ways, any everybody who, who coached in the 50s and 60s understood that um, uh, everybody that uh, coaches through the 1950s and 60s um, understood that a national, a black college national title went through Tallahassee, went through Florida A&M, and went through Coach Gaither's teams. The media attention was nowhere what it was during those three decades after World War II that was – the three decades after segregation ended. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Jay Gaither didn't get the platform on ABC at Yankee Stadium that Eddie Robinson did, even in losing to Morgan State. I had to get that reference in because I'm a proud Carl Karen alumni of that illustrious institution in Baltimore. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, but there really was no media attention other than the black newspapers for Jay Gaither. Did you find that that impacted the way he is remembered? Oh, absolutely. I think that, like, you know, one of the things that you see is that we don't see significant numbers of black sports writers um, coming into uh, white newsrooms really until the 70s after Gaither had retired. Like, I noticed that in the Tallahassee Democrat, which was the black newspaper, I mean, the, the predominantly white newspaper in Tallahassee, didn't really hire someone until 1968, 1969, kind of in wake of the civil rights movement. Uh, and so you're really talking about the fact that the the white press kind of belatedly comes to 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 the story, and they're able to really kind of try to talk about the the leading personality and at that time was it was definitely uh eddie robinson and you know abc had this uh documentary on grambling that was hosted by uh, howard cosell which made it did a huge uh tremendous uh amount of media attention for the grambling program i will also add that the grambling program also benefited from the fact that that the nfl is also growing um, beginning in the mid to late 60s into the 1970s. And, and Grambling becomes the leading HBCU in producing uh, professional black uh, professional football players, right? And so whereas FAMU was the best program in the 1950s in producing pros, um, Grambling becomes the leading program by the 1960s, mid-19, late 1960s, and well into the 70s. And so when we do that, you know, how do we measure what the best programs are one of the kind of convenient metrics that um, sports writers and observers can make is to say, look, who produced the most pros? And at that time, there's a point in the early 70s where when you look at the number of pros on NFL rosters uh, after the AFL and, and the NFL merge, it's uh, USC, Notre Dame, and Grambling. Grambling is like the third most productive program, right? And so that fuels this discussion about, um, you know, when we, as the way we understand black college football through Grambling. But that comes a slight, not only I think it slights uh, Jay Gaither, but it also slights a ton of other programs. It, uh, it, it, it slights Ace Mumford's work at Southern. 
It's like Billy Nix at Prairie View, Eddie Hurd at Morgan State. Like these are people who Earl are, Banks, um, Errol Banks at Morgan State. Like all these coaches, these are legendary men who led young men into adulthood and produced high quality football. Uh, and we're leading tacticians on the field. Uh, and so all those guys get kind of overshadowed by the legacy and history of Eddie Robinson. Derek White is our guest. He is author of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, which chronicles black college football through the greatness of the legendary Florida A&M coach Jake Gaither. It's a fascinating read, and I would encourage you, not only if you're an HBCU sports aficionado but a college sports aficionado because it is an outstanding work and and how long did it take for you to do the requisite amount of research to go back and chronicle this give me the cliff notes version if you will of how you researched chronicled and then put this work out uh well you know as a as an academic we were teaching classes and and in addition to doing research and so it took me about seven or eight years to kind of do the whole from start to finish um you know one of the things that i started is that there were very little kind of other scholarly works on black college football so i felt like i was starting from from the beginning um the first thing that i did was that i was you know, that the research and, and history has really transformed that newspapers, in particular black newspapers, the Chicago Defender and Pittsburgh Courier and Atlanta Daily World, um, among others, were had been digitized, I want to say, in the early, mid-2000s. Um, and so, like, 2006 or seven, there's this new digitization process that allows for one, a person like myself who's interested in football, to read, like, 100 years' worth of black newspapers. Um, and reading the sports page every year and kind of tracing what Florida A&M did uh, year by year. I went to the archives, obviously, at Florida A&M and Atlanta University where the SIAC's uh, archives were. Um, and, you know, you just, you're just always kind of calling for new information. I talked to a bunch of folks who, uh, who were, um, former players. I met, you know, I met them at conferences. I met, uh, there are a handful of academics who played at black college football at Tennessee State and Southern, and they gave me some different stories, some of which helped me think, helped clarify my thinking. But that's the process. And so I really, you know, I really did, um, a tremendous amount of, of, of really kind of going back into this black press. Cause as you pointed out earlier, you know, uh, the only place that you could find information about uh, HBCU football was in the black press. And, um, and so that was really kind of my, my, my gold mine that had not been yet mined, I think by scholars fully in understanding black college football. You just said something about clarifying your thinking. Did you have any preconceived notions? And what became more clear to you about the African-American national pastime, as I like to refer to it, black college football, by going through this process? I think, one, I, you know, my, my mom went to Kentucky State, my uncle went to Kentucky State, my brother went to Florida A&M, so I had always had a deep appreciation for black college athletics and black colleges in general. Uh, and 
And so I, I came in there with this assumption that I knew that there was a story to be told, and I knew that there was this fascinating uh, understanding of black life through sport. Um, I think the thing that really helped me, the hardest part, I guess the most interesting part of the book was, for me at least, is like really thinking through the ways in which someone like Jay Gaither had to grapple with the civil rights movement. Uh, as, as we both know, that Brown v. Board of Education in 1954 suggested that uh, segregated schools were always inferior. And this ran in the face of what Coach Gaither and many other black college coaches, both in basketball and football and athletic directors, as well as presidents, um, believed that they were kind of caught between this logic of Brown, the civil rights logic of Brown, and their lived experiences. And so they are trying to navigate this this frame, this this this. Uh, assumption while keeping the doors of their institution open, and in the case of Jay Gaither, keeping his football program uh, really running. And so one of the things that scholars have suggested is that Gaither did not support the civil rights movement. And that was really where I was trying to, because I'm a civil rights scholar by training, is that was one of the central questions I was trying to answer. And it is very clear that he wanted his institution, but he always, he has this quote, and this is me paraphrasing, he said that he said, I believe in integration, but I believe that the process of integration is all wrong, right? Uh, and I felt that there was something about the process that really troubled him uh, in particular. And so people had, you know, other scholars kind of intimated that uh, these black coaches were um, only concerned about their self-interest. And I argue that they were basically institutionalists, that they believed in these black college institutions that were doing more. And so that was really kind of for me me, um, very helpful and kind of flew in the face of kind of some of the assumptions that other scholars have kind of implied and were making about uh, desegregation and, and, and the role of black coaches. But, you know, uh, as you know, uh, Jay Gaither was the most powerful, one of the most powerful African-Americans in Tallahassee, bar none. Uh, he could get a meeting with the, the governor of the state. Um, he had tremendous numbers of of influential white politicians in the, in, who worked out of Tallahassee who um, came and he talked to on a regular basis. Um, and so he was in a, I think he was in a, I always thought, I always kind of came away with them being in a vice, right? They were kind of trapped between this merging civil rights movement and at the same time wanting to maintain black institutions. And so there's a lot of tension that I try to tease out. Uh, in the book. There's so many layers to that answer. I was fortunate enough to have met both Coach Rob and Big House Gaines before mm -hmm. they passed away. And the theme was, yeah, it's great to have these opportunities, but what's going to happen to our young men and how are they going to grow and develop understanding that no matter what you do in your field of play, you're still a black man in America. And as you look at the evolution of the game today, has that been sort of lost, that, that cultivation of what it means to be an African-American male in the United States by not having coaches who are truly committed to not only winning football games, 
but developing men of character, men of strength, men who are leaders in their community. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot, there's something definitely lost, right? Like, I don't know if we can actually pinpoint what it is because there's tremendous new opportunities, obviously, you know, at the professional level and whatnot. But I think that there's a thing that I've always, I was taken back by in this, in this project that Gaither kind of constantly referred to this idea of the, what he called the spirit of excellence, right? That he said that, you know, if you, if you're going to be a doctor, I want you to be the best doctor. If you're going to be a ditch digger, I want you to build the ditch deeper and wider and faster than any anyone else. And if you're going to play tackle, I want you to be all conference, right? Like he felt like that those things were not separate, right? That the football, um, the success on the football football field was not to be separated from the success in other aspects of the life uh, in, in student and professional and adult life. And this was his job was to help them mature in a particular kind of fashion. And, and I think the success bore out, right. That, you know, that, um, these coaches and these programs and these institutions more broadly do a much better job of, of, of producing and, and helping cultivate African-American talents, um, uh, at their institutions beyond the athletic achievements. Uh, and so I think that there's something that gets lost in that translation. Um, and, you know, and so I think that we see this and I think even the contemporary landscape, that came out right when I was uh, near the end of the book was that there were several studies that pointed out that black students, uh, uh, contemporary black K through 12 students do better when they have black teachers, right? So what is that relationship um, that there's something else besides the curriculum that's happening uh, in that development and that these black coaches uh, were able to, to foster that? On the flip side, what you see during the, during, you know, the late 60s, and early 70s is that all these, um, you know, Harry Edwards and the revolt of the black athlete is really pushing these predominantly white institutions to hire black assistant coaches. But um, as, I, as I think, as you know, and as I know, that the assistant coaches, there's a kind of levers of power, right, that these coaches, especially in the 70s, had very little advancement opportunities beyond recruiting black athletes, like, like that was their job, uh, and to keep them happy uh, while they were there. Um, and so I think that there's something still lost in not only the coaching aspect, but also what's happening in the classroom, right? Um, that um, there was a report the other day about Florida State and Jimbo Fisher, Fisher where he, his whole job was basically like to keep the players eligible. Like that was the only thing that he, that was his only admonition to, to Florida State players and coaches and staff. And they had all these kind of academic troubles. And of course, Willie Tack now the black coach gets this dream job, one of the elite jobs, and he's tasked with changing the culture. And one of the things that was in that article was that he put this culture of, of responsibility and accountability in play, and that coming from a black coach that he had to really generate this kind of accountability amongst the predominantly black roster, right? So there's all these kind of dynamics at play that we see still playing out even in today that black colleges had honed in on and black college coaches had honed in on uh, in the 1960s at the height of segregation that still continue into this day. All right. A couple of minute, last minute questions in our two minute drill, if you will. It's well documented. The best athletes no longer going to HBCUs, but they do when they excel, get their opportunities to play pro football. Do you see it spiking? It'll never be what it was. 
but are you noticing in any way, shape, or form that legacy is beginning to count for anything as more than just a transfer opportunity for a lot of athletes who don't get their chance to shine at major schools when things just simply don't work out? I mean, I mean, I think we're in a little bit of a mini renaissance, right? I think that we've seen the success at the professional level. I think we had a lull in the early 2000s, by my account, that, that we didn't see as many black college uh, players getting opportunities, being drafted, being uh, given opportunities as free agents. Those have been on the kind of consistently been on decline, of course, since the height of the 1960s. But I also think that what you're also seeing is um, that the success, for instance, of North Carolina A&T's football program has now made people really kind of rethink um, their decision. Like, why would I go to East Carolina when I could go to North Carolina A&T and have a better kind of cultural, academic experience? And at the same time, as, as North Carolina A&T pointed out, that you could possibly beat East Carolina, right? So there's a certain kind of uh, opportunities. Uh, but that said, that black colleges, you know, that the cost of college football has uh, um, has gone up astronomically, right? And black colleges, which have always been um, marginalized um, both by the states that they're in, if they're public, and marginalized because of their private status, they have not been able to raise the kind of capital that's probably needed. Um, and so black so football is just a very expensive sport to run. Um, and so they are always operating at a disadvantage. So, for instance, at Dartmouth, one of the things that I've been fortunate to do is talk to, to many of the coaches here at Dartmouth. Uh, and, I, you know, I asked the athletic director a few years ago, like, what was their recruiting budget at Dartmouth? And they were like, oh, we easily a million dollars. You know? Wow. And, you know, and so – you know, we've got student athletes at Dartmouth, and this is a unique kind of thing. And, and, and I want to point out for the audience that in the Ivy League, they technically do not offer athletic scholarships either. So, right, we don't have. I know yeah. that there's that there's grants and aid and all of that, but there there's not the full you know four year full ride. Just as as a point of clarity, but go ahead and continue. Yeah, so we don't have scholarships, but we have student athletes from, you know, uh, of all races and nationalities from, we have students from Hawaii all the way to Massachusetts, right? So we've covered the whole country. But uh, in my time here, our, our black student athlete population on the football team at least has grown, uh, you know, exponentially. And we have approximately like 50 to 60, so more than about half the roster, which is pretty significant for the Ivy League, which hasn't always had this kind of demographic. But to get that, it costs us. It costs the program a lot of money to recruit uh, that many players, and so we have a lot of African American young men from the South, from Florida, from Georgia, from Alabama, um, uh, Louisiana, and um, you know, and so black colleges are competing against places like Dartmouth, uh, who don't have scholarships, and students have all great grades, and they're also competing against, you know, you know, Power Five schools where the elite athletes, and they're competing against schools like Richmond that have, you know, a $5 billion endowment and that had endowed its athletic um, coaching, uh, the coaching salary got endowed in 1983, right? So there's all this thing. And so uh, as a friend pointed out to me, he was like the the booster money that North Carolina A&T was super excited. They had raised, I think they had raised 
a um, million dollars for the first time as in their booster program. And um, and Dartmouth raises like a million dollars a year every year, more than a million every year. You know what I mean? So there's this like this is the kind of dynamic that black colleges. This is the environment that they're facing. Not even saying anything about the logic of racism and the assumptions of inferiority that kind of emerge from I think the civil rights movement, as I argue in the book. Uh, and so black colleges are often faced. But that said, I think that we're in a little bit of a renaissance. Black college numbers are up uh, across the board. At, uh, enrollment numbers are up. Um, and I think this is a really kind of opportune time for programs that uh, are poised to take that leap to really kind of delve into and use their athletics program to really take advantage of that. And I think the quintessential example of that is A&T. On the flip side, Florida A&M is struggling. They just got uh, announced with, I don't know, hundreds of violations earlier this summer. Um, I don't know if you saw that article where you had a pro day where no one showed up at their pro day. Um, and so these are the kinds of challenges still facing. Um, but I see there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of potential and there's a lot of hope, but um, who knows how it's going to shape out in the next, in the coming years. And on a lighter note, let's talk about the Orange Blossom Classic, which is kind of forgotten as the first real classic as we know it. It's morphed into the Florida Classic, which is one of the elite seven classics in in America right now. How big was Jake Gaither's role? Because we know that Eddie Robinson, for as much as he did on the football field, was a great marketer for black college football. He took his team mm-hmm. to Japan. He took his team to <laughs> yeah. all over the place. The band was able to play at the Super Bowl and all that all through the back of his work. But would it be safe to say that that really started with Jake Gaither and this Orange Blossom Classic? Yeah, I think I you know, I made the case that the Orange Blossom Classic was really one of the first kind of intersectional um games, right? We where you see, you know, I make this note that the the Bayou Classic uh even at its peak is it, still determining the SWAC champion, right? It's two conference it's a conference game more or less. Uh and that the Orange At Blossom least the West Classic, Division for purposes of clarity oh, yeah. these days. Yeah, 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 yes, it's the West Division Classic. Um but I think that one of the things that the Orange Blossom Classic had in its advantage is that it was able to, at its peak, especially in the early 40s and early through the early to the mid 50s, was able to draw the best program. So if you were seven and one or six and zero, oh, Jay Gates was on the phone inviting you to come down. Um, in those days, uh, Miami did not have a professional football team. And so they were regularly, you know, in the 50s and early 60s, it was not unusual for them to get 60, 65,000 people at the Orange Bowl. They're the team that desegregated the Orange Bowl. Uh, it was a massive, massive undertaking that really spoke to um, the importance of the game, but the importance of classics as a way of balancing your budget. Um, and it became a model that, other teams had tried to to emulate with uh, other programs and other other cities tried to emulate with varying success. Uh, I will say that the Orange Blossom Classic was the closest thing that we had in black college football, at least, to a Rose Bowl or Orange Bowl, one of those major bowl games that we think of when we think of college football. That was that. Um, and it, uh, you know, in many ways it was undermined because of desegregation, but it was also undermined 
because the Miami Dolphins uh, were a new franchise, and by the early 70s, you know, uh, the fans, especially white fans, you know, that would attend the Orange Blossom Classic stopped coming, uh, and they went to see the Dolphins, especially if you think about the 72 team went undefeated. And so there's all this kind of energy. Uh, and so those two things really worked to undermine the Orange Blossom Classic. But for 60 years, or for 50 years, excuse me, it was really one, it was really the premier uh, classic in black college football, and it's the thing that that the, the Bayou Classic will model itself on. It will be the thing that um, uh, the Circle City Classic, for instance, will model itself on, uh, and eventually the Florida Classic, which comes up in the 1970s, uh, really kind of takes on some of those same kind of uh, attributes. Fascinating read, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, which chronicles the evolution of black college football through one of the all-time great coaches in the history of the game, Florida A&M's legendary Jake Gaither, Derek White, the author, and... Dude, what a great spokesman you are for the legacy of the African-American national pastime. Thanks a lot for sharing your knowledge, my friend. Best of luck with the book, and we look forward to uh, kicking it with you later on down the road. All right, man. Thank you for having me. That's going to close the book of Sports Talking on Shadow League Radio. Your executive producer, as always, is Yusuf Khan. Remember, you can find me, Mark Gray. That's spelled Mark with a K, Gray with an A, at The Sports Groove 24-7, 365 on a computer, smartphone, tablet, however you get your social media groove on. I am there. And as always, give somebody you love a hug tonight. You may not get a chance to do it tomorrow. Till next time, we are out of here. Peace.